So let's go ahead and get started. This is Acts 5, chapter 5, and a lot of stuff, man, they're dropping like flies, (laughs) and a lot of questions, a lot of things come up in our minds when God acts in ways that seem to be um, unloving and inhumane and everything, and we question God, and it's okay to to be inquisitive and stuff as long as we're not standing in judgment over God. So we're going to get into this chapter here and get, hopefully get some answers with that. So Almighty God, be with us. Help us to have an understanding. Use my words to, to be your uh, tool. Um, and uh, we just, just want it to glorify you, Almighty God. Amen. All right. We have to remind ourselves or remember through this that we, are in, we as a church are involved in God's sovereign plan. It's got a plan. Time is a plan. Eternity is a plan. He's got a plan. And, and this plan is unfolding. We're a part of it. The church is his body, and we are his witnesses. He's not here walking amongst us anymore, but his spirit lives through us, and we're his representatives. We're his ambassadors here on this planet. We just got done with chapter 4. Reported, reported great harmony, one mind, um, um, fellowship, generosity. It ends with um, 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 Barnabas selling some land and laying it at the apostles' feet. And I'm sure this was done with a lot of people. You know, these are thousands of people now that are hanging out in Jerusalem, um, fellowshipping and, and becoming believers and, and everything. And, and so here's Barnabas, you know, a lot of people donating and, and all that kind of stuff, takes a chunk of land and he lays it, the money at the apostles' feet and everybody's like, oh, wow, this is you know, generosity and good things and stuff like that. And, and who's in that crowd watching? But a couple other people, right? So we're getting the idea that church is a healthy place. It's, you know, look at all the harmony and stuff, all right? We have to remember, let's just slide one thought in there in Matthew 24, when Jesus was talking to the apostles, and they were walking around in Jerusalem, and they just go by the temple, and they say, wow, look at that, isn't that a beautiful building, God? Jesus, isn't that, you know, master, whatever they called him, rabbi, beautiful building. And he says to them, not one stone will lay on top of one stone. And it's going to happen. And they, he gave them the, in, the, the impression that it was going to happen soon, that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And when that destroys, you get your stuff and you hightail out of Dodge. So they knew, but they didn't know when, when that was going to be happening. So maybe, just maybe they thought, now's the time to unload this real estate. I don't know. I mean, if you really think about that, because it was kind of eminent on this, right? And seven, you know, in 70... What, 60 years later, 50 years later, it was going to happen, and it was going to be leveled, and they were going to scatter. So they weren't holding on to their stuff as tightly as we may seem they are, Um, but still it was an act of generosity, okay? But it did help them. If you know that there's going to be a tornado that blows through here next year and just demolish everything, we might want to have the inside scoop and do something. I don't know. But anyways, that happened. So, we're going to get into chapter 5 now, and I'm going to say this before I start. News alert. There is no perfect church. We all know this by now, right? Maybe when Christ comes and sets up the millennium, there'll be some sense of, but even that, there's going to be some problems. So, there's no perfect church, okay? 
Verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge and he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right. Laid, kept some of it. So they're in there. They maybe were watching what was going on. Maybe they wanted some of that fame for themselves. I want to give you a quote from Spurgeon. Someone, or from a writing about Spurgeon, someone once told Charles Spurgeon that they were leaving his church because they were going to find a perfect church. Spurgeon was quite a witty guy, and he responds like this. When you find it, please don't join it because you'll ruin it. Now, there's a lot to be said about that because we are imperfect beings, right? And we are you know, live in a fallen world, so it's not going to be perfect. So here we have a church, and these two characters, his husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, were thinking maybe they wanted some of this notoriety that Barnabas had gotten. Um, But we know that they were both in on it. We know this with his wife's knowledge. And if we go to verse 9, we can see when Peter is asking her about it, you know, almost giving her an out, And it says, is it true that you have agreed together? And she said yes. Because some of us had some questions like, well, was she just being a submissive wife? I think this is pretty much saying that she was in on it, in agreement on it. Um, And and if he was dead, she was off the hook and free to say, no, it was all him. I didn't do it. But she didn't do that. Um, So they kept back some of it. They misappropriated these funds. They stole they gave the image of great generosity. They were deceptive. It was perverse vanity and ambition. It was a contempt of God. It was a lack of faith. If they gave the whole thing, what, what would happen? It was hypocrisy. I mean, there was a whole slew of sins that were going on there besides just they lied. But what was actually happening that troubled God the most, all of this stuff gave impurity to the body of believers. It wasn't holy. They weren't holy and set apart. And God wanted to have a church that was holy and pure. Okay? Peter's reply, verse 3. But Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard about it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, here comes Sapphira. His wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land. I guess she didn't know he was dead at this time. Tell me um, you sold the land for how much? And she said, oh, yes, for so much. But Peter says to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out immediately She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. It's interesting, fell at the feet. That's where they laid the money at the feet. 
When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So a couple of things we're going to pull out of that. The least important of this I'll start with is that Peter is pretty much letting us know we have a right to ownership. It's okay to have private property. It's okay to have stuff. That's a good thing, you know. As a matter of fact, the Eighth Commandment in the Ten Commandments says what? Do not steal. Doesn't that imply that we own something and we can steal something from somebody else? So there's nothing wrong with ownership. We can have private property, okay? The problem here was their hypocrisy and their lying and their deception that was was contaminating the fellowship of the church. So, that being said, another thing we're going to pull out of here is the role of Satan, okay? We do have an, an enemy, a very powerful enemy out there that is not, not, appreciating the spread of the gospel, does not want the church to thrive, does not want to have holy fellowship. He cannot tolerate or stand anything like that, okay? So if we're not attempting anything important for God, then he's going to leave us alone. If we're just going to say, well, yeah, you know, I keep my private lies and I do whatever and I have my own thing, you're probably not going to be bothered by Satan, But if you are trying to do anything and live a godly life and be holy in everything, he's going to be, you're going to be on his radar. First Peter, Peter has in his uh, first epistle there, 5, 8 to 9, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, be aware. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. You know, lions, they like really prowl and hunt and spy. Okay? They're very creepy. Seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone in this suffering, okay? But the God of grace who is called by you will take care of you. But you have to do a couple things there, okay? You've got to resist the devil. James 4, 7 says, be on guard. You know, Peter says, be on guard. James 4, 7 says, first submit to God, then resist the devil and he will free. You just can't try to resist the devil on your own. You've got to be in submission to God with it. Okay, those kind of go hand in hand with that, right? How do we stay in submission to God? We start our days with devotional, with talking to him, a prayer life, a Bible study. You know, our example is Christ in the desert when he was tempted by Satan. He used scripture to battle it back. We've got to have our nose in the book, okay, and be, be walking um, close to God. And then we resist him. That's where the power comes from. But the most important thing we're going to pull out of this, though, is that sin is always against God. Peter tells him, you've not lied to men but to God No matter what we do, it matters to God, and it does matter to other people. We can't minimize it. We may say that, well, no one else knew about it. It's not going to hurt anybody. But you know what? It, 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 It damages us, and it damages our relationship with God, and that's going to affect other people. We're going to be out of sync with God, and we're going to be out of sync with other people. And the, and the Spirit of God is not going to be able to really flow freely in our gatherings or in our lives if we have sin. So it does matter. It matters to God the first thing, and then it just has this rippling effect. It's a, it's a cancer. If we 
didn't have, if we weren't eternal beings, choices, decisions we make here on this earth wouldn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. It's not going to amount to anything. But being that we are eternal beings and we are going to live forever, decisions that we make now on this planet are either going to make, yes, decision that heads us more toward being a holy and righteous and Christ-like, or it's going to be a decision that's going to lead us to be more hellish and uncomfortable until God turns the washing machine up on us and gets us to repent and get back here. All these little decisions matter in life. It does matter. Sin matters. All right. So God zaps these people, right? He zaps them. Why? Why did this happen? Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Everyone who heard in that area, great fear. That's the first place church is used to describe fellowship, the way people. Great fear fell upon it. That's actually in there twice. It's also in um, 5b. Great fear happened. When Ananias fell, great fear came upon all who heard about it. Great fear came upon the whole church and everyone who heard about these things. Why would God do that? Well, to help us understand scripture, because there's a harmony of scripture, it's not going to contradict itself. We're going to look and see where else God zapped people. There's two other places in the Old Testament where God zapped people. Snuffed them out, killed them, dropped them dead, laid them low. Whatever you want to say. (laughs) Put them to sleep. How about that? You put them to sleep. Um, Okay. All right. Nadab and Abihu are the ones we're going to look at. They were, and then we're going to find out from looking at those two instances and this one, the common theme and maybe why, understand why God did what he did. So they were the two sons of Aaron, the Levite. Their story is found in Leviticus 9 to 10 and throughout you had to have an understanding. So. During the Exodus journey, the Israelites had affirmed their covenant with God. And he was setting up the, the, the priestly, Levitical um, duties and the things that they needed to do. Okay? So Aaron, these are two sons of Aaron's. They were of the first priests, okay, appointed to do the priestly system that God was putting into practice to prepare the way for Christ. The, the, the ultimate sacrifice, okay? And God was very, we might want to say persnickety, but God is saying here, this is how I want it done. It's not going to be the way you guys want it done. This is the way I am going to have it. So he laid out all these things, and he tells these people that when he's going to do the, um, the proper sacrifice to him, God told them that he's going to send down his own fire to consume it, and that will be a sign when God's fire from heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifice that his presence is with them. So what do these two clowns do? They don't wait for God. They do their own little incense thing, fire up their own little thing, and they burn it, and that was unholy fire. An abomination to God. Aaron's son's burned the command to wait for holy fire and offered their own incense with profound fire. Profane fire, sorry. Anyone who altered the sacrificial system assumed prerogative over God. 
Oh, we don't like the way God does. Let's just make a short. We do that so much today. We're so off track, aren't we? Of course, he's not zapping us dead. He zapped him dead there. Why? Because it was the beginning of something. We're going to go with a fresh start. This is what's supposed to happen here. This is how it's supposed to be. All right? So that happened to those guys. The other one is Uzzah. Uzzah's story is found in 2 Samuel 6. Um, God, again, had specific directions on how he wanted that ark moved, right? It was going to be on poles between uh, the Levites' shoulders, and they were going to do it this way, and they were going to carry that thing, right? Well, Uzzah gets in there and said, no, we're going to build a cart for God. Did God tell him to build a cart? No. So they have a cart, this little, and it's kind of rickety and stuff, and it's going. Not as stable as guys that can kind of be the, you know, the gyro, you know, whatever, to balance it out. And it starts to tip, and he reaches out his hand to steady the ark, and boom, he's dead. Why? Because he did not take the seriousness of how God lays it out. This is what it's to be when you come to see me. Now, the law is that given to show us our sin. But again, that was at the beginning. They were bringing the altar back into Jerusalem. This was at the beginning of something, the beginning of a covenant. What do we have with, um, with um, Ananias and Sapphira? What do we have? The beginning of the church. So from the beginning of this, we have it established this is what's going to happen. You can't be lying. You can't be deceptive. You've got to be genuine people. So from the beginning, he lays that out. I had a teacher in grade school. I was trying to remember what year I had Mr. Vozar. Vozar, I think he was Russian or something. Wasn't a very big guy. He was the English teacher, so it must have been sixth grade because we had different subjects. So in sixth grade, we had Mr. Vozar. And everyone, when we were in fifth grade, it's like, oh, Mr. Vozar, he's so wonderful. He's so fun. You'll have a good time. He would come in in the morning. He'd be playing polka music and stuff to get his class going. So we were all excited to get Mr. Vozar. That first day of fifth grade, when we walked into Mr. Vozar's class, there was no polka music playing. He has us write down this little thing. He tells us, do not write on the last line of that paper. That belongs to me. And he marched around and like this. Don't you write on that. You know, and, and we're like, oh, we're thinking, oh, my gosh. This is not the Mr. Vozar that we thought we would get. But after he established those rules and established who he was as the authority in that class, because we all were coming in, we're going to do polka dancing, right? He put us in our, he, had, he made an understanding of where we were and, and what it was going to be like. And then the polka music came out and everything like that. But he built, he built the reverence there. You see what's going on here? So these three instances in Scripture where God, where people disobeyed and he killed them, it was at the beginning of something to, to make the point that this is serious business, you guys. Half the church would be dead if he did this today, wouldn't it? He was starting something new. He was using the church who are new creatures in Christ. So they had to think in a new way. They had to think and believe in a new way. They had to be bold and they had to trust him. All right. Let's carry on. Great fear. Great fear in Jerusalem. Woo, what do we get ourselves into? Great fear in the church. But what happens in verse 12? He's such a cool God. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. God's still loving them. 
God's still doing all his wonderful stuff. Signs and wonders. Remember, they go together, signs and wonders. He does something to make the people wonder, and then they point to a truth. All right? Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So we see that God is still loving his people. He's telling them, I am a powerful God. I'm a serious God. I love you. I'm going to take care of you, but you've got to, you can't have sin. I'm I'm taking that very, very seriously, all right? There was unity. There was harmony. um, And sometimes I think that's probably the biggest miracle God did was to have harmony of that many people. I mean, there were thousands of people there that were getting along with each other, okay? It was a display. um, God was displaying to him that you need to take it seriously, but I'm going to take care of you, and we're going to have a good time. So there was a selflessness, and they were sharing, and there was great joy. 13, that was going on in the church altogether. Now the rest, none of the rest of the people dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the number, multitudes of both men and women. So what happened, some of them were afraid to join. Oh, I'm not doing that. But others were like, yeah, multitudes are coming. God, by doing this with Ananias and Sapphira, was saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to take this seriously. We're just not walking an altar and saying, yeah, I want to be baptized. You have to know what this is required of this. So some of the people were too afraid. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to give up that life because he expects me not to lie. Well, forget that. I'll be killed. But the other people were just saying, yes, I'm willing to give that up. And, and follow the Christ, be a part of the church. All right? Interesting verse there, verse 11. I mean, down there with verse um, 13 and 14. 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. All right, I, that, that probably gave you a problem, right? That gave you a problem, that verse in your groups? No? Gave me a problem. I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? What what's going to keep them from not worshiping, you know, woohoo shadows and stuff from Peter? The people were expecting miracles. They were expecting miracles. But we have to know, we have to remember that alongside signs and wonders, it's pointing to a truth. So, people were coming in there and being around the apostles. The gospel was being spoken. They were going there believing that we're going to get healed. Well, what's going on here? Why are these people together? What are we hearing? They're being presented with the gospel. They had to have some kind of belief in what was going on. All right? Now, God works in mysterious ways. I thought, well, maybe not all of them were saved, but it goes on to say that all of them were healed in the end of verse 16. So, but it wasn't healed because of Peter, and it wasn't healed because of his shadow. It was healed because the mindset of the people came there believing that, you know, and, and, and whatever Peter was standing for and whatever miraculous thing was going on, that, the, you know, these, these apostles were called by God. They were re- witnesses to Christ and his ambassadors or something to this Jesus thing. Okay. They're all healed, and their numbers increased. Extremely important, though, in verse 16 is this. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted and unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Remember verse 1? 
their commandment, chapter 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that you will be my witnesses in what? All Jerusalem? In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. So we'll see here that, you know, and we're going to see in a minute that it, the, the uh, religious leaders were accusing them of spreading the gospel through all of Jerusalem. So that's been accomplished now. It's all through Jerusalem. But now people from Judea are coming in. Okay, so now it's starting to spread out into Judea, Samaria, just the way Jesus commanded it to go. All right? Miraculous power of God is displayed through his people. He was unfolding his plan of salvation, this great rescue mission that God had to save man from eternal damnation was being spread again like fire, with wind and the fire and being spread out. But the claws of Satan were swiping at it. Okay, not wanting it to happen. And we can see as the spread is going, the uh, opposition is growing, growing, growing. All right? God was keeping his church pure and set apart. And as it spread and grew, Satan's opposition to it and the hatred toward it was even more. God was working through his church to keep it strong. He couldn't... We we can't have... uh, lying and, and, and falsity and stuff like that and not be on our, our game when we're going out into a world that is so opposed to him. We want to be on the front line. We got to be on the top of our game with this because the opposition is great. And we see that when we look at verse 17 through the end, right? 17. Everyone's healed. Everyone's happy. Everyone's, yeah, look at all the stuff that's going on. But the high priest rose up. I love that word, rose up. I didn't look at to see what it meant, but it gave me an image of, of a, you know when an animal gets angry or they start fighting? Like they get, they get, they get bigger. Even the, even the stupid sheep, they try to get bigger. <laughs> That's about it. They stomp their foot, you know. But, you know, cats will get their hackles up and they, oh, birds will get, oh, they get bigger. They get bigger, rose up. So here it is. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is in the party of the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection, and filled them with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. This is such a great read. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison door and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of the, of the life, which means speak the gospel. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at Braydake the next morning and began to teach. Meanwhile, the angel locks the door behind him. I love this. Now, when the high priest came, <clears throat> all rose up and stuff, who, and those who were with him, and they called to gather the council, and all everyone's coming together, gather the row because we're going to bring them on display, making fools out of themselves. All the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned, walking through all the crowds of people that are prepared to prosecute these apostles. And they reported, we found the prison securely locked, and the guards were standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering 
what this would come to. Now, we have a sign. We have a miraculous escape from prison. That's the sign. Now, we have wondering what it's about. And now we have it pointing to the truth. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. There you've got pointed at the truth. And the captain, with all his officers, went out and brought them, and not by force. They voluntarily came. People would have been mad at them if they had. And they brought them before them. I'm going to wait there for a minute. Remember last week we had Psalm 2 was the thing that was the scripture that came to the believers' minds when they were praying and everything. And do you remember Psalm 2 is about the nations of the world rising up against God and his, and his Messiah and hating them and everything. And what does God do when they rise up against him? He laughs. Didn't you laugh when you read this? I mean, isn't that just the most hysterical thing that there they are? You can just see them all set up and everything ready to... And then, I mean, God is up there just laughing with the angel who unlocked the door and locked it back. Hey, we're just going to, just for kicks, let's lock the door again, you know? (laughs) I just love it when he does stuff like, and he still does stuff like that. We may not notice it. We don't always have spiritual eyes, but he's promised to take care of us. And he is laughing at our enemies. He's laughing at the diseases that are out there. He's laughing at everything that hates God, right? There's a lot of people that hate Christians and it's growing, But he's laughing at them. We have nothing to fear. So they come together and then they say to them, verse 20, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. They can't even say the name of Jesus, can they? This name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem. There it is, with your teaching. They have filled Jerusalem with the gospel. Wow. And not only that, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Oh, that's a little added thing there that um, wasn't in there before, all right? Gospel's been spreading, that's God's plan. But now the apostles are holding these religious leaders responsible for the death of Jesus because they keep saying, the one who you crucified, this Jesus, the one who you killed, this Jesus, the one that you killed and God raised from the dead. Well, if you look at Matthew 27, 24 and 25, when Jesus was before Pilate. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, he was finding Jesus pretty innocent, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent Of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barnabas to us. That was their own words there. Peter's just saying back to them, The blood's on your hands. And here they are saying, You can't put that blood on your hands. Oh, yeah, we can. Well, the blood of Christ actually is on all of our hands. We just have to accept that gratefully, um, as his gift to us. So, tensions rising, hate is rising, 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 rising. So we have a but Peter there in verse 29. 29 to 31, um, Peter is, answers them, we must obey God rather than man. What did they have to do? God had told them through the angel in verse 20, go out there and preach, Okay. 
So they had to obey that. Can't obey you. We already covered that last week. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Those little verses there are known by um, New Testament scholars to be the template to preaching the gospel, okay? It is the message for a perishing world. And verse 32 says, We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given us to those who obey him. An eyewitness, first-hand testimony is always reliable. 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So they heard the gospel point blank. And what does it do to them? Enrages them. The word actually means sawn asunder in their hearts when they heard that, you know, Jesus, God raised him from the dead and it was they were responsible. It was like, who are you to tell us to repent? Who are you? Don't you run into people like that? I've not done anything wrong. I don't have to repent to anybody. And they were enraged at this accusation that they needed to repent, that they were guilty of the blood of Christ who God raised. Um, They had threatened them and they couldn't stop them. The spread of the gospel, they beat them and that would not stop them. So now the ultimate thing was they're going to have to kill them. All right, so it's intensifying, intensifying. So they were ready to kill them. All right. Wanted to kill them. 34. Gamaliel comes on the scene. Now, Gamaliel is probably the um, well-known, famous rabbi that Paul, the elite, if you wanted to get a good education and you go to a good school, you want to go to the best school, the Ivy League school or whatever, I don't even know if they exist anymore. Back in the day, if you wanted to become a, a scholar of Old Testament, a good Jew, you would go and sit under this teacher. He was the man, okay? Well-respected, okay? Teacher of the law, held in honor by everybody, all right? But he was a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. And um, the Sadducees had a little bit more political power, but the Sadducees also needed the support of the Pharisees in order to do anything to get Jesus killed, you know, through the Romans or to have any kind of justice done or anything like that. So they had to be united in order to go to the Romans for any kind of thing like that. So they couldn't be working against each other. So the Sadducees are all enraged, and here comes Gamaliel, a, Sadu- a Pharisee, and he has wisdom. He's got, he's got wisdom. Um, he was a rabbi with the title of our teacher, which is a step above rabbi, um, my teacher. He was like the elite teacher. He was a grandson of Hill- Hillel, I think I said that right, um, who founded the, the first school of religion there, okay? So he was a pr- pretty big mucky, mucky, mucky. But he was a fence sitter, wasn't he? Let's just wait and see, you guys. We're just going to sit on the fence for a while. We're going to see how this plays out. Because remember, in history, when we had some guy rise to power and a bunch of followers, well, when he left, it all kind of fell apart. And then we had another, it happened again. So this Jesus, this Jesus, if it's true that he is the son of God, then his thing will flourish. And if it isn't, then it'll just kind of fade away. 
At this point, it's not fading away, is it? At this point, it's going like wildfire around there. Whether or not Gamaliel became a believer or not, I, I don't know. Um, but at this point, he was just kind of on the fence. So they say, okay, they beat him and let him go. In verse 41, they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We have no excuse why not to preach, keep the gospel alive. We have no excuse. We're commanded to. Um, we're equipped to. Um, we need to boldly step out, knowing that God will do this. Now, they were all killed. Let me run down what happened to them. They eventually were all killed. Matthew was beheaded with a sword. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. John died a natural death, but they unsuccessfully tried to boil him in oil. Now, I kind of think he maybe died of that. Boiled in oil would be pretty bad and have to survive that. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a height, then beaten with clubs. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was whipped and beaten until death. Andrew was crucified and preached at the top of his voice to his um, persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through with a spear. Jude was killed with the arrows of an executioner. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded, as was Barnabas. And Paul was beheaded in Rome. So it doesn't have a happy ending. But you know what? They all went home rejoicing that they had suffered for the preaching of Christ. May we be found so bold as that. God, help us, almighty God, to to not focus on these things of the world, but to do what you called us to do, and that is to be witnesses to you. We have been empowered by your spirit. We hold on to that promise. Help us to have lives that that is evident in. Help us to be holy and pure, confessing our sins, striving to be upright um, so we can be the best witness we can to your glory in the name of Christ. Amen.